Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Python Community News, the show that brings you the non-pip installable news around the Python community. Uh, as always, I'm one of your hosts, Jay Miller, and with me is... I'm John Bonifato. Hey, John. How's it going this week? Good. How are you, Jay? Good. You know, we don't have as many topics this week, and I think that's fine, because I think the topics that we do have are maybe not the meatiest, but I'm going to have questions. Um there's going to be a lot to 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 kind of discuss in in some extents. So without further ado, let me do the thing that I should have done earlier by sharing my screen, and we can jump into the first topic, which uh, you brought, which is about some folks uh, diving in on that PyPI benefit. Yeah. So this is a. I guess kind of an update to a thing we talked about uh, a while back, uh, but over the summer, PyPI uh, ran a promotion, a giveaway for uh, PyPI users. So anybody who has an account on the Python package package index to get free uh, Google Titan hardware tokens, security keys uh, to enable uh, two-factor authentication on their PyPI accounts. So initially, this applied to maintainers of what they called critical packages. Uh, and they defined those as packages that had uh, the top 1% of downloads, I believe. Uh, and uh, over, over the course of the giveaway, they rolled that out to more users. Um, super interesting updates here are that uh, through the course of that that uh, giveaway, uh, the number of users that had two-factor authentication enabled on their accounts uh, went up by 3,000. Um, so that was a, uh, about 10%. Um, and uh, they, they also gave away uh, 1,600 hardware security keys uh, to users that were that were eligible, you know, throughout the throughout the promotion, um, and then uh, a, a bunch of projects also uh, require two of a now. Yeah, you mentioned the the thing of like, if we look at it, just above board, we have thirty one thousand folks that now or projects that have two FA enabled, or I guess users that have two two FA enabled. And four thousand projects with two FA enabled. I, oh wait, no, I'm reading this wrong. I am. Yeah, I'm the, like trying to read the tweet and think about what you said, and then do all the things. Those are the things. the four thousand yeah. of the critical projects. Yeah. Um, the uh, four hundred and forty uh, projects that require two FA now. Yeah. So when you when you look at this, there's like eighty five hundred users, roughly. There and they said this was this was an increase of you know what six times six x if it that that would have meant that if there were like I mean I mean I don't know like it's it's so many like numbers of like I thought that this was a good thing I thought that this was like in the grand scheme of things you got more people enabling two fa you've got more more projects in general not even the most critical ones which i think is interesting because when i would think of 
you know, sure, you want to aim for the critical ones, but if you're an attacker, maybe if you go for something that's too critical or too in the spotlight, to me, it's like find the thing that every that no one's thinking about and like attach to that. But the fact that of all of these things, they added, you know, they sent out sixteen hundred, and out of the grand scheme of it, three thousand new users turned on 2FA. To me, the campaign was successful, but I get what I get that there could be a problem with only 400 unique projects saying, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, yeah. So I think that the, the campaign itself was successful in increasing usage of 2FA and to contextualize this a bit, 2FA doesn't, inherently require a hardware token, yeah. right? So if you're using um, Google Authenticator or if your password manager has a, a 2FA uh, support feature built into it, right, you can use these uh, TOTP style um, two-factor authentication tools as well, but uh, the hardware token gives you some additional security on top of that. Uh, the The main benefit there, from my point of view, is that it's much stronger against phishing attacks, right? Uh, just yeah. because of the way that uh, these, uh, the, these schemes work, uh, your browser can verify that um, the, the site that's sending the 2FA request is the correct one. Uh, whereas if you're using like, you know, the code that you would get from Google Authenticator or, you know, if you have some some other accounts where you get like a text message based 2FA, right, those those can be fished by having uh, kind of a man in the middle site that takes that uh, that code and passes it through, right? Um, and, and the hardware tokens prevent that. The, the browser um, actually validates it for you. So uh, if if you end up on a different site, right, that looks like uh, no, really, this is pypi.com, right? Um, the the hardware token will return back a, a different um, different response when you try to authenticate with it. So you can't pass that response along through to uh, to to the real site. Um, it's, it uses the site as part of its verification there. Um, so that, that's that's a big benefit. Uh, but so we've got we've got sixteen hundred hardware keys that were distributed, uh, and I believe these went out right, two per user. So uh, a bunch of these users that enabled two FA uh, may not be using hardware tokens. Uh, maybe, maybe they weren't eligible for for the giveaway, or uh, you know for whatever reason didn't didn't get their their tokens. Uh, they they still increase the security of their own account, and then you know by extension, PyPI as a whole, uh, by by enabling two of a through a software method. Yeah. So so effectively, like even if the package itself or publishing the package is, I don't want to say insecure because it's not insecure, but even though that there's like there's more that could be done at the package level having the users themselves increase the security on their on their side and their authentication side is at least a step in the right direction. 
Yeah, it's one of a bunch of steps, right? Yeah. Um, and and these are a, a group of steps that involve everyone from end users uh, to library maintainers to the PyPI admins themselves enforcing things like this, right? Um, that that all kind of additively determine the security of the Python ecosystem, yeah. right? and so. Uh, one of the dangerous things here of not having two-factor authentication on your account is if you end up getting your account compromised, someone someone malicious gets access to your PyPI account, they can then go push uh, malicious versions of any any packages you maintain, for example, right? So this is a, uh, that's the sort of thing that, uh, this uh not approach uh this initiative is is aiming to prevent against uh, but there are also things that you can do as an end user right if you are using some of the uh, features that uh, pip supports for example like hash checking mode and pinning all of your dependencies right you can prevent those from those malicious versions uh, from from ending up in your environment when you don't expect them to, um, so so it's a big kind of if if we take a step back, there's a much bigger picture here, uh, and this is only one of the things that PyPI has done to increase security. Um, there are also uh, things that they do really regularly, like they take down malicious packages, they uh, uh, have the a block. They do as well. Yeah, um, they, they they audit packages. They have a a block list that they maintain for, um, kind of like typo squatting attacks. So uh, I think one of the most common ones is people try to register things like requirements.txt yeah. as a Python package name. So if you forget the dash r, uh, you know suddenly you've got this uh, th this package in your environment that's doing something bad. Uh, and right, you you can't do that through PyPI. Yeah. Also, just just for fun, I know that uh, the team at Microsoft has done a lot to uh, protect pip install Microsoft. Uh, you can do it, uh, but what you wind up getting is a nice little uh, ASCII GIF artwork of Clippy. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> anyone that's looking for a little Easter egg there, um, yeah, there you go. I I like this because I think that ultimately it, it's. Again, this is just one thing in the plethora of other things that you know PyPA is doing to make sure that people are as safe as possible. And I mean, again, we're we're probably we're the people that are enthusiasts on this and want to learn more about it. Um, I have talked with uh, some people that actually are a part of the of PyPA, and they've agreed that they're going to come on the show. Uh, probably uh, in a future episode. Uh, I don't. We don't have a date set yet, but there will definitely be some people that can talk into the details of of all of these efforts that they're making. Uh, and if you want to, if you want that, let us know. Let us know on social media and tell us about it. But let's let's move on to the next topic, which is one that uh, I brought to the table, and I, I thought about this for two reasons. Uh, one, 
I, I have done a lot of speech to text projects um, in my day. I love doing speech to text stuff, just nature of podcasting. Um, but I also like doing things that have an accessibility tie into them. And the University of Illinois and Urbana-Champaign are actually kind of combining both of these. And they have teamed up with some heavy hitters in machine learning and in speech to text. Uh, that includes, you know, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta, and they are working to make speech to text accessible for people that have uh, verbal disabilities, uh, people who might have a, stu a stutter or a stammer, um, people who may have uh, challenges with using their voice or they have to use voice assistance instead. And they're working to bring a diverse data set. They're actually taking volunteers as well. Um, and they're going to build training models off of uh, these data sets to make sure that a lot of these speech-to-text algorithms take those, visual, those verbal impairments in account. Um, John, what, what did you think about this? Uh, I mean, I, th I think it's a super interesting project. There was also a recent um, tool released by OpenAI that uh, has has been doing um, uh, speech to text. That you know, th the these tools are all getting much more accurate than they used to be. Um, they're they're still uh, kind of far off on on some some aspects, and this is a a thing I've seen particularly, and Jay, you've you've done a bunch of work in this space too, with doing things like uh, captioning live or not um, uh, conference talks with like technical topics makes it a, a really difficult um, uh, kind of domain to, uh, to to apply these tools against because there's all this jargon and uh, some some interesting uh kind of abbreviations and acronyms that that end up in these uh th these recordings right that make it uh usually a challenge for uh for these software software tools but uh i'm i'm super interested in knowing kind of where this is going to go in terms of um right licensing and things like that uh, do, have they have they provided information on Right. Who will be able to use these? So they haven't they haven't given out uh, an actual like oh here's a license model. I, I think they're announcing that this is a project that is going underway. Um, but with that, the thing that I like about this is with all of the primary speech to text algorithm services. Like I've used AWS Transcribe, I've used Microsoft Speech to Text, Google Speech to Text. Um, I mean, we look at the the commercial products as well of like all of these people have, you know, speaking assistants. But my hope is that because they're working on a machine learning algorithm on this and not just like a private, if it were like one company, I would be thinking like, okay, it might be like some private product or something and that's it. But because everyone's getting access to this, my hope is that we will see this extend into those services as as well 
which are the same services if you're using a tool like Descript or if you're using a tool like um, or even a secondhand service. I know there are a few that have like their own, like they piggyback off of the transcribe service and then they add their own dictionary sets to make them more applicable to whatever, you know, group and even things like open AI. Like I think that have the ability to do this and um, that project for, there's a project for journalists that we talked about like whisper uh, or stage whisper that is a Python project that I, I could even see benefiting from this as well to where they're talking about multiple languages, but it's only, it's only the beginning here. And the thing I like about these types of, these types of news posts and the reason that I wanted to add it, especially is that this is going to affect people in the Python community in different ways. Um, Again, I like I've talked to people and, and I didn't ask them for permission, so I'm not gonna throw their name out there. But I know that they, there are like some of my favorite talks are from someone that is suffering with Parkinson's disease. And the 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 issue in that is that you're engaged in the talk and you're trying to understand and comprehend at the same time. And these tools will help with that. And, and that to me is like a, you know, rising tide lifts all ships kind of moment of like, hey, at your conference, if you can't afford, you know, a stenographer and you, you go with a, you know, auto-generated version of transcriptions, this becomes a better tool for people who have very recognizable speaking disabilities but it also makes it easier for those who are comprehending what's being said as well. My hope is that as an academic project, it will remain open to the public to use and to learn from. I mean, I can't promise that it will be. They haven't said anything yet. I was actually looking at this, um, but it did say that it's, you know, they're committing to levering the data, data and making it, you know, and helping to people make, you know, improve. I'm trying to read it here. Again, I'm struggling to read today. Um, the Speech Accessibility Project is committed to leveraging project data to make improvements within their respective voice recognition products and services. I'm hoping that that's going to be uh, a sign that we will get to use and we will get to benefit from this as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious what uh, open source tools are, are out there that, that people can use today. I mean, are, are there really any? I haven't seen many. Um, I don't think I've seen any technically. Like if you're talking about, uh, just to clarify, are you talking about like speech to text in terms of accessibility? Uh, I, I meant uh, speech to text kind of as a competitor to, right? Mm. Uh, the, these, uh, right, Amazon has their, uh, you know, AWS version of it. And I'm, I'm sure a bunch of big players have, have their own kind of internal ver, uh, internal speech to text tools. Um, but right, if I wanted to, to build out a tool that, that used something like this today, uh, and, and I wanted to leverage, uh, you know, open source or otherwise free software, mm. um, right. Are there any options really out there? I, I'm not sure. And, and that's actually a good, something to, to look into. 
I think the challenge with that, I've seen some like different corpuses and like things of like, oh, hey, here's here's like an index of, you know, all the spoken words, but that's usually involving written text, not uh, verbal. So, or, you know, not not speech. So I would, I'm also interested in that now. And I'm like, hmm, I I feel like the challenge with that is any form of, of these kinds of models have to have some form of training data. And even with, you know, we in a world where deep fakes are a thing and, you know, or even commercially viable deep fakes, you have to train that model on a voice. And the thing that works with most of these commercialized services is that they just have so many variations of voice that like, there isn't much training that's required, but that's also where a lot of the errors come in is because they don't have a specific training set to someone's voice. Um, so I, I could see where there could be a problem, but I also feel like there might be a solution that's like, okay, let's train on this person's voice. Let's have them say these, you know, these 100 or 1000 words. And then from there we can now do speech to text for this person really well. And it's all open source. Yeah, I know that um, Mozilla has a project uh, that that aims to gather uh, voice samples and, and and things like that. But right, if if I were to say want to grab this and 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 use it in an open source project, um, I, I I don't know how to do that today. Whereas <laughs> I I do know how to be like, okay, well. I'm going to pass an audio file in and get some yeah. text back. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a really interesting thing. And I really hope that it, it does end up in a more uh, open format, right? So that, so that it can be a, a, a lifts all ships kind of thing, as opposed to, right. Um, you know, the, there are a couple of tech giants that, that are involved in this, this project and and if if it all ends up kind of locked behind their gates, um, you know it makes it more difficult for individuals or or smaller uh, smaller companies or or even right open source projects and nonprofits to, uh, to to build on top of that and make it available to you know more people uh, in a in a freer way. Yeah, and and again, you know, this last part of the the AMA that they have on here or the FAQ is, you know, will the data be available to other resources, researchers? And the answer is yes. You know, the goal for this project is to support a wide range of efforts to make voice, rec you know, voice recognition technology more useful. I, I, to me, that says, even if it's not, if not the end result is given the data itself will and should be available at least to other researchers and, I mean, just in, in a space where like usually you have to get grants and funding for projects like this, which is why I'm sure that, you know, having having, you know, major companies <laughs> attached to it means that maybe your funding problem is resolved. But I my hope is that I'm hoping that University of Illinois will do the sharing and the end result will just be that all the commercialized products will also be available. But if, if the college or the university is responsible for the data set itself, I don't see why they would 
have any reason to not uh, share those results. Yeah, re recently, and this is sort of tangentially related, um, the, the federal government here in the U.S. Uh, announced that they were going to be requiring publicly funded research to be publicly accessible. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know exactly what comes out of that, right? I don't know if it's like, here's the paper that's involved and that, and, and that's what you get, or if it's, or if it's really like, Hey, here's the, you know, here's the model that we built as part of our, uh, our, our research project and, you know, maybe some other trading data. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how those two things kind of overlap. Yeah. You know what else is going to be really interesting, John? What's that, Jay? Python 311. That's that's going to be really interesting. And interesting enough, we have uh, we have some smiling faces, which tells me that things are hopefully going well. But the the CPython core dev sprint uh, has wrapped up. And uh, this time Google hosted it. I, I I know a few of these faces. I work with them, and and I was getting a lot of out of offices, and now I know why. Um, it's you know it's one of these things that we we don't think of that often. Um, but I've actually had the the privilege of of talking to to Guido about this and saying like, how does the core team collaborate? And the answer is what you would expect, you know, a lot of issue tracking and comments and things like that. But then ultimately there are a couple of sprints every year where there's a big push, uh, a big push to get things done, a big push to, to understand and coordinate and talk with each other. Uh, and this was the second one. Um, normally there's one at PyCon and then this is the the second one that's you know around the wrapping up of python 311 and probably even talking a lot about uh what's coming up in 312 and other things and, and we weren't there so we can't speculate but but john how familiar are you with you know the c python core dev life cycle i guess uh pretty much not at all um <laughs> you know i have filed a bug or two with the the issue tracker uh but Beyond that, yeah, uh, I I know that these sprints happen, um, and, and they're they're often talked about. Right, there are uh, blog posts and such that come out of right. Here's what was done at PyCon and all the things that were discussed there. Uh, but but yeah, I'm you know I'm I'm pretty far removed from the actual core developers, and 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 C Python itself. Yeah, I you know. My thought is that most people are probably even less informed <laughs> than we are. I mean, luckily we're, you know, we attend things like PyCon and other conferences and we have the, you know, we know who a lot of core developers are. We can just ping them and ask them questions when we have them. Uh, but I think one of the, one of the reasons that, you know, I was happy to do a show like this was that like, Hey, that gives me more of a reason to dive in and learn about these individual, you know, these, these types of things. Uh, and, and one of the things that I think a lot of people don't think about unless they are, you know, deeply involved in the Python ecosystem is like, how, how does 311 come to be? How does, you know, what's the planning cycle for that? So I, I wanted to kind of give people this, 
this glimpse into what that cycle looks like, but also why it's important that these types of sprints happen. Um, so I'm going to start with, you know, PEP, which is, you know, the perform, uh, like, what is it? The Python enhancement proposal, um, which is just a way to say, here's a thing that I think would make Python better. Quite, quite literally that, I mean, that is what an enhancement proposal is. It is a, I have this idea for what, you know, what should be in the next version of Python and then, and then in subsequent versions from then on there. And let's, let's say we want every time someone goes and types in Python enter, you know, an ASCII art of a cat appears. I, I have the ability to suggest this, you know, this is, this is a, a thing that I, I, you know, I have the, the possibility to do, but then I need to do like the justification. Like, all right, hey, why? Why why does ASCII art of a cat need to appear every time you type in Python? And I said, well, you know, all the all the version information, while it's important, I guess, you know, it's just not as important as me feeling good to see like ASCII art of a cat. And that that's why I think that that should be there. And and then they say, okay, well, how would this impact new users? Well, I mean, they they would be happy because again, ASCII art of a cat. How would this break the existing experience of all of the other versions of Python that exist? Well, I don't know. Um, there there might be might be some issues there. And then on top of all of that is what is the actual implementation details to some extent that would make this a reality? And and all of this has to be identified in this in this proposal. What's your timeline of this? Once you've done that, it has to go into voting. And trust me, there are going to be a lot of people that want to vote on this. Um, probably voting no, but you know, it it ultimately gets brought to the steering council, which for those that are unfamiliar, Python was created by Guido Van Rossum, who was the benevolent dictator for life until he retired from that position. And then a steering council, which was put in place using this exact same process, uh, was added and now they make the decisions and they get to decide ultimately is this a thing going forward that we're going to work on once that happens then you have the arduous task of implementing that code into c python testing it testing it a lot making sure it doesn't break anything making sure any changes that you make you know are going to interact well that they fit within that schema they fit within those standards and i'm making this all sound like this is happening in the course of a few days this process takes months and sometimes years um we talked about it in one of the previous episodes with about you know the faster c python team and like this plan on how to improve the performance of python that stemmed from a project that Mark Shannon wrote about, I want to say during Python 3.8, 3.8, maybe. And the first implementation of that plan didn't, isn't being seen until Python 3.11. So that, that's a two-year process. And a lot of these things happen like that. You know, Eric Snow's working on subinterpreters. 
this is a thing he's been working on for four years of like doing all of these things. So looking at all of that process, you have these, a very methodical process that ensures that Python one gets the features that they need prioritized by the features that are being brought in. And also that they're not breaking things, you know, like I will break our website from time to time because, you know, Hey, I added a thing, forgot a comma, didn't have a test written for it. Syntax error, boom, everything is broken. You can't have that happen with Python, you know, in the entire interpreter. That's a bad idea. So you go through that process, you're checking, you're double checking, you're triple checking. And then finally it's scheduled for release to where then it goes into beta and people find more bugs with it. And then you have to work on these things. It's at these sprints where a lot of each of these steps take place. Hey, we have a collection of, and I'll, I'll throw the picture back up. We have a collection of core developers here and we can all sit down and talk about why ASCII art of a cat would be beneficial or not beneficial to Python, you know, 312. And they would sit down and they would have this discussion and, and people will have differing opinions. They'll have different execution ideas. They'll have different concerns raised. Some people are more focused in scientific Python, others not so much. They might be thinking about, you know, web frameworks. And ultimately it's this that helps build those processes. And remember, these only happen twice a year. And that's where when when we see these posts and we see these publishes, like this is the moment where now I would say if you know who these core developers are, um, I can only like look at some of the picture and I say, okay, I see Mariotta, I see Guido, I see, you know, um, a few others, I see Pablo. It's like, I need to be following those individuals now. I need to be checking the C Python repo on GitHub and like looking to see some of these conversations because out of these sprints will be the next two or three versions of Python. I guess that brings up a really uh, a, a point about how can I, the average Python user, stay up to date with these things, right? If they're if they're being worked on right years in advance, if if somebody comes up with a proposal that says, "All right, well by you know twenty twenty six, we want Python to be able to do X, Y, and Z," uh, where can I go to actually? keep informed about changes that might happen and are happening to the Python language. So I think there's, there's a couple of places. Um, I mean, one, I'm just going to tell people like, you know, if you follow these people on Twitter, they are actively talking about these things. Um, also, if you're following the C Python repo, there are plenty of issues that get filed. Um, there is the actual pep um, system that you can look at. And that is, to my knowledge, I know that there is a way that you can see peps coming in. And it's called the, I'm going to bring it up on the screen now. Uh, you know, peps.python.org. This is, you know, at pep zero, you have the index of enhancement proposals. And you have some meta peps, you have some informational stuff. Um, 
and if you if you're a developer and you're getting into python just you know recently and you hear phrases like oh you know pep8 compliant or uh zen of python you know th these are peps these are things and actually i saw zen of python in here which is why i thought about it um but yeah like you know pep8 is style guide for python code from guido you know from warsaw and coglin and then if you're doing some form of like C Python development, there's PEP7. Uh, and there's like all of these processes get outlined here. And new PEPs come in all the time. There is a very long list of these PEPs and a list of all the people who have contributed to them. Uh, but I do believe that there is, yeah, there's an RSS link that you can just subscribe to here. And now any new PEP that comes in, which I have added, uh, the latest one, PEP 699, is remove the private dict version field added in PEP 509. Um, and, and again, this is this is why this system exists of like, hey, there's this thing that got added this one time. Maybe we, maybe we remove it now. So I would say if you want the immediate, like here's where PEPs are started, then that is the place to do that. Um, again, I also mentioned, let me, let me go to, uh, there's github.com, cpython, cpython, that's, oh, okay, well, I'm not sure anymore. It is, uh, it's, it's python slash cpython is the, cpython. there we go. Yeah. I was like, that doesn't make sense. So then you can see all 5,000 issues, 6,703 issues that are currently open. Um, and as you see some of these things, some of these are bugs. Again, some of these are labeled. So I would say definitely you want to look at the labels. Um, you're definitely looking at things like awaiting merges. Um, and that will give you this idea of like, okay, what's happening? You know, here's something about, you know, an adaptive argument, which my guess is that's probably for, the specialized adaptive interpreter that's coming in 3.11. So to me, those are the two best places, but that is if you are very, very invested. If you do a podcast where it requires you to know this kind of information, to me, I think the, the real answer there is find some core devs, make sure you're following them. They love to talk about the things that they are working on. Um, and that's, that's not even a dig at them. That is, I enjoy talking to them about these things. So often you can, if you just ask them, they will say, oh, I'm working on this with these three other people. And there's like, Hey, now there's three other people that I can follow and like, see what they're talking about. I think that's going to be the way that you get introduced to some of these changes that are going to be coming in the next few years. And, uh, you know, I, I know that the, the language summit at, Pi, at PyCon US often ends up with a, a series of blog posts um, uh, on the, the Python uh, Foundation blog. Um, should we expect something like that to come out of these core developer sprints? I don't think that you're going to get much from, you know, the PSF. <laughs> you're not getting much from the PSF on these. Um, but you probably will see a lot of those individual, you know, core developers, you know, if, if they are the blogging type, you might catch them dusting off the blog for, Hey, let's, let's talk about some of these features and what it's actually going to take. 
Um, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed uh, as I've gotten to know uh, some of these core developers more. And and I am not, you know, I, I want to make sure people aren't getting the wrong idea. I am not a core developer. Um, I don't want to pretend to be one. It seems like a very uh, challenging job at times. But what I what I often do is just jump in and ask. And often they will point me to a blog post that they wrote or a gist that they wrote or, you know, you know, some proposal or as as the faster C Python team has it, you know, just a repo of ideas um, that, you know, are just at the starting point of how to, you know, embark on this. But I would say I don't think the PSF is going to talk much about it, but I think you'll see the contributors themselves, the core devs themselves. Uh, I think they would they would definitely check it out. Speaking of things to check out, uh, we got asked, uh, and this is this is why this this podcast exists. Uh, we actually received a request from one of the organizers of a really cool conference that I just learned about earlier this year, and that's PyCon Japan. Uh, that's going to be next week. If you are uh, in the Jap, you know, if you're in Japan, yeah, you know, then absolutely. If you can, if you can figure out how to how to make it to the venue, I believe it is in Tokyo. I believe it is in Tokyo. I could be wrong. Um, I am not sure what their virtual uh, presentation is going to be this year, but the organizers of the conference reached out to us. Speaking of core developers, there's one there, Mark Shannon. Uh, he was the one that wanted to get the uh, Faster C Python project going. Um, there's going to be a lot of great talks there. And I want to give a shout out personally to the organizers of PyCon Japan because I've had the privilege of talking with them at PyCon US. And they're very passionate. They have so many amazing and like unique ideas that just come out of like straight out of Japanese culture, which I don't know how many people are familiar with uh, watching variety shows or seeing like variety videos from like Japanese television shows. Um, they are a blast. They're absolutely amazing. And PyCon Japan as an organizing body embraces a lot of these things. So if, if you are in the, you know, if you're in Japan and I, I do believe that they are doing virtual tickets, I just don't know, and I don't want to lie to you. Um, but especially if you're in Japan, go ahead and grab your ticket. Go hang out. There's an official party. I don't know what this official party is. I want to know more about it. But it looks like there's a lot of things that can be done there. Um, and yeah, go check go check that out. And John, I don't know if we had any other conferences, did we? Uh, well, around, uh, I guess, the week after next is, is going to be DrangoCon. You got yeah. your ticket yet? Uh, yes, <laughs> I do have my ticket. I will be there. I will be speaking. Um, actually, I, I found out that there's some schedule changes. So the speaker list did change. Uh, I'm still on it. Uh, they, they didn't kick me out yet. But yeah, Django Con isn't it isn't this coming week, but it'll be the following week. Uh, and I may I'll, I'll see what I can do. I, I would love to have some interviews from some of the folks that 
we're there. I can't promise we'll do this for every conference unless they want to buy me a, a plane ticket and a conference ticket and cover hotel. Uh, and then, yeah, I'll, I'll just be the traveling, you know, guy on the <laughs> guy, guy on the show floor. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I definitely want to have some, some feedback for after uh, Django con and uh, let people know kind of what, you know, what insights I got out of there. This is Django con's first year back after covid um and they're doing really interesting things with uh virtual tickets uh as of right now the in-person tickets uh it's too late for that um but you can still get a virtual ticket and we we've had that conversation about our virtual conferences you know what are they doing there there will be talks that only virtual ticket holders get access to the people that are that are there at the show will not get to watch these talks until after the fact um and they're they're going to be doing some other stuff for a lot of the virtual attendees as well so if you're interested in that be sure to go ahead and go to uh djangocon.us and grab your ticket there. I've I've been reassured by a lot of the organizers there that it they plan to have a really fun time. And the the virtual ticket's a pretty great deal. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's gonna uh, wrap up the show, John. You got anything else? Uh, that's all I got for this week. I th- I think we did have a thing. Um, more of just a. Hey, people who want to contribute to the show, uh, we've been giving you a URL that no longer is going to be the URL. And I have to now type in the new URL and hope that it works and that I'm giving you the right one uh, because we have moved over the project to its a repo and an organization there called Python Community News. And there is a link there if you go to topics it is a repo that will host upcoming conferences and the topics that we talk about if you have insight on a topic or you just want us to talk about a thing uh we mostly cover current events and things that have just happened but i definitely wouldn't be against if someone's like hey i really want to know how pip works uh maybe maybe we can bring in someone from you know, from PyPA, maybe we can get E or we can get, you know, someone there to say like, Hey, can you just come on the show and explain to us how this works? Because some people really wanted to know, um, this would be the place to go. GitHub.com slash Python dash community dash news slash topics. Uh, and don't forget Hacktoberfest is among us. We are right in the middle of it. I know I've already gotten a couple of PRs submitted, um, once again, thank you to uh, Phoebe Quincy for joining us last week to cover that topic and how people could get involved. But we will probably have a couple of issues ourselves. Uh, if you just go to Python dash or you know github.com slash python dash community dash news, you'll probably see a couple of issues available, whether it's in the site, whether it's in the automations, whether it's in you know helping with documentation or GitHub actions there will hopefully be some issues for people to, you know, claim and uh, get some of that awesome Hacktoberfest swag from. But I think that's going to do it for this week. Anything else, John? 
That's all I got. All right. Well, uh, I've been Jay Miller. You can find me on Twitter at KJY Miller. Uh, John, where can people chat with you at? I am pretty much everywhere on the internet at uh, John Afato. Yep. And uh, with, you know, for, for the both of us, I guess this is it for this week's episode of the Python Community News.